You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for August 2015. Today's episode is titled, The Bias Against Christ. Given the Christian view that all humans are born morally evil and have only limited ability for moral goodness based on common grace, management must seek to develop workers who have been and are being redeemed from their moral depravity by Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. These workers are difficult to find. Therefore, it is incumbent upon management to develop an organizational culture that helps workers come to a saving knowledge of Christ and mature in this knowledge. Such workers will be empowered beyond common grace by the Holy Spirit to increasingly overcome evil as evidenced by progressively improving alignment with the will and ways of Christ. Organizations with such workers function selflessly to serve customers and clients. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, The Bias Against Christ. So today we're going to start out with Acts 17, verses 16 through 21. And the title today I've I've chosen is the title, The Bias Against Christ. And the reason I've chosen that title is because I find that many people don't really understand that there is a bias against Christ. There's a tremendous bias against Christ. And some people might say, well, that's a fairly recent uh, phenomenon. Clearly, you can look at the culture in the world, particularly in the United States today, and you see a bias against Christ. It's like every other worldview is acceptable except Christianity. Well, actually, this is not unique. It's not the first time in history this has happened. In fact, if you go back to when Christianity was founded, you will discover that right after Christianity was founded, about 70 AD, when, uh, when the Roman, Roman Emperor Nero destroyed Jerusalem, he instituted a policy basically that was pluralistic, that is accepting all worldviews except Christianity. So Christianity was, a, was the only persecuted worldview or the major persecuted worldview for the first 300 years of Christianity. And this is, this, this is the pattern. This is indeed what's happened historically over time is that people have not chosen Christ. And the reason they have not chosen Christ and can't choose Christ is because of the sin nature that is within man. So this text right here will illustrate this point among other points. Let me read Acts 17 verses 16 through 21 to you, and then we'll go through the text uh, word by word. Now when Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? And others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time and nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So you get a glimpse of the culture in Athens in the first century there with the Apostle Paul's visit. He's come there from Thessalonica because the the Jews in Thessalonica became very jealous of him. 
and he went to Berea and the Jews from Thessalonica heard he went to Berea. So they went over to Berea to again, express their jealousy and stir up trouble for him. So Paul's handlers, you know, out of concern for his well-being, you know, took him to Athens to get him away from that persecution. So Paul is waiting in Athens for his sidekicks, Silas and Timothy, who are still back in Berea. He's waiting for them to come to him, and then he's going to continue his second missionary journey. So it's while he's in Athens waiting for them that he's looking around and observing what's going on. And it says here that his spirit was provoked within him. I think that's a very interesting phrase. It, it's suggestive of how God has created us. There is a spirit within us, and with, within that spirit contains something of the destiny and purpose of God in our lives. We refer to that in the C4 principle as calling. Calling, you know, has both an external and an internal component. The external component is there is a caller calling us to what we've been created to do. Obviously, the caller is the creator, and the creator will use, use mediating agents, such as commissioning agents, to express his call. He also gives us an internal witness to his call, and that comes from what's in us, that he places in us. And so a, a great way to see that is right here in this text. Paul is in this city waiting. He wasn't there to do anything else. He's just waiting and he's observing. And now what's inside of him is provoked. It's stirred up. It is, there's something in him that's rising up and saying, I must respond to this situation. This is not of human origin. This is a divine origin. This is a divinely ordained move of the spirit in his heart. And so when you're trying to help people find what they're called to do, or you're trying to find what you're called to do, one of the indicators is what moves you internally. What passion do you have? What is this something that's rising up in you saying, I must do this? And so that's what happens to Paul. The spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Now, Paul, as a trained Jew, knew well the first two commandments of the Decalogue. He knew you would have no other God before, before Jehovah, and you, he knew that you could not make a graven image. Those were forbidden. Those are contrary to the law of God. And as a believer, he knew that the law of God revealed things that would be true of believers. In fact, as you read Paul's epistles and Peter's epistles, you see that their view of Christianity was highly shaped by Jewish Jewish law by the Old Testament. The Old Testament gave birth to the New Testament. At the time of Paul's writing, of Paul's living this and Luke writing this, there was no New Testament. There was only an Old Testament. And so when Paul went into the Jewish synagogues, as was his custom, and to proclaim Christ, what he was doing was speaking about Christ from the Old Testament. So he knew full well the danger of idolatry, and that danger was just as true today, post-Christ, as it was pre-Christ. So he saw it given over to idols. That really disturbed him. He knew that was very out of order. Now, let me just talk for a moment about Paul's custom. If we were to go back in this particular text 
to the beginning of chapter 17, we would find him coming to the city of Thessalonica. And it says there that it was his custom to go into the synagogue and reason with the Jews. Now, what did he reason about? Well, we get a clue from that in this text right here, because these people heard him talking about Jesus and the resurrection. So clearly what Paul did is he went to the Old Testament to help the Jews understand that Jesus had to suffer, had to die, and had to be resurrected for the purpose of God in men and women to be fulfilled. So the Jews who, who, who put authority in Scripture, that's the way that, that Paul would approach the Jews. He picked their point of revelation, that is special revelation through the Scriptures, and he embraced that as the starting point to talk to them about Christ. Now, interesting, we're going to see in this Acts 17 text that when he approaches the Gentiles, the non-Jews, he does it a little bit differently. What he does now is he focuses in on general revelation because the Gentiles don't embrace and value special revelation like the Jews. Here's an example of, of, of this reality in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 24, which says this, For the Jews seek a sign. The Gentiles seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and the Greeks foolishness. But for those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, there you see both special revelation and general revelation used to reveal Christ. To the Jews, we're going to use special revelation because they bend the knee to special revelation. To the Gentiles, we're going to use general revelation because they bend the knee to general revelation. And so that's what he's saying here is that I, you know, he knows how to be relevant to whatever audience he's speaking to. So that's how Paul thought, and that's how he lived. In fact, Acts 17.2 indicates that was his custom. That was his standard operating procedure. So going on here in Acts 17, it says, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue, that is, he, he engaged in a discourse obviously explaining the Messiah, the work of Christ in light of the Old Testament teaching, and the Jew, with the Jews and with the worshipers. Now, it's interesting in this text that word Gentile is not in the original language. That's why it's, it's in parenthesis here in the New King James Version. So it specifically says he was engaged with the Jews and the worshipers. The, the translators of the New King James inferred that the worshipers was a reference to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish worshipers who happened to be in the synagogue. Now, he could speak to those people, even though they were non-Jews, based on special revelation, because you wouldn't be in the synagogue if you didn't believe the Old Testament, if you didn't accept the Old Testament scripture as authoritative, which they did. So he clearly was engaged with them. And then it says, in the, work, in the marketplace, daily with those who happen to be there. Now, that's a fascinating thing to me, because in the Roman culture, the people who worked were the non-Romans. The Roman citizens did not work because they had a Greek view of work. The Greek view of work is that work does not bear any, any dignity. There's no value in work. 
the real value is in being contemplative and being thoughtful and thinking about philosophical ideas and debating those ideas. That was the Greek mindset. And so that mindset was very prominent in this day. So when he went into the marketplace, he's continuing to talk with the Jews and the other maybe ethnic groups that are not Roman citizens, because these are the people that do the work. In the Roman Empire, the slaves did the work, and many times they would be Jews and non-Roman citizens. So he's engaged here using special revelation, explaining Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, and tying it to the Old Testament. So that's how he's engaged with these people. Then, in the process of all this discussion he's got going on, he runs across these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, these are the descendants of the Greek philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, the big three in Greek philosophy, you know, have given birth to eventually the Stoic and Epicurean worldviews. Now, we don't have time to go into great depth here on these two philosophical systems, but let me just say they are different, and the Stoic system, or, and both systems have some similarities. They're both based on reason, and the Stoic system was all about, you know, being happy through a virtuous life. The Epicurean system was all about being happy by virtue of eliminating pain and suffering in your life. So they had, they, had, they had ultimately the same objective, and that is happiness, but they had two different ways to get to it. The Stoics also had a very profound sense of a, a being that transcended this existence that was also part of this existence. In fact, they, were they tended to be pantheistic on that point, and alignment with that being was, was indeed important. That was very platonic in their thinking. The Epicureans were more Aristotelian in their thinking, because Aristotle was more into the, the particulars of life, so the Epicureans tended to be more naturalist. They did not regard any kind of you know, spiritual being as relevant to this life. They thought everything that happened in this life happened by virtue of natural causes. So they were naturalists. They were deists. And that was very much in the Aristotelian tradition. So you have, in a sense, followers of Plato and followers of Aristotle while they have some commonality, they have some distinct differences, and they don't respect each other. In fact, the Stoics view the Epicureans as atheists, which is very interesting. And the reason they do that is because they're so focused on naturalism. So these people don't get along well. They, they argue, they fight, they debate. And nevertheless, when you bring Christ into the equation, the two enemies become allies. It's the whole saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so... That's how they became friends, is they united against Christ, and now that you see the bias against Christianity coming out, because you see how they responded now to a foreign message. And this is a culture where they're all about hearing all kinds of ideas until you bring Christ, and they're not interested in that idea. That's the bias against Christianity. Then some, some uh, certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered, encountered Paul, and they said, some said, what does this babbler want to say? Now, when they said the word babbler, that's a, a very disparaging term. Literally, the word refers to here is someone in the workplace, in the marketplace, that is there without any intent of contributing to the marketplace. He's just going to pick up whatever he can find there and take it for himself. That's the sense of it. 
the word babbler is not a great translation, you know, of it. But the, it's a very negative, disparaging term. What they're saying by using that metaphor is he's coming here with these ideas, claiming these are something new. He's just picked this up along the way, and it's just a bunch of junk. It isn't anything. It's nothing. So it's a very disparaging turn here. Okay, and then others said this. He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. Now, that's interesting, too, because in the workplace, in this, this marketplace there, you have not only the Greeks, you have all the foreigners. All these foreign people are accepted there. And now when you bring an, the idea of a foreign god in, which you would think that would be readily accepted, they can't accept it because he's bringing in Christ. The bias against Christ is in all of us. Every human being has an inborn bias against Christ because Christ is holy and righteous, and we are inherently by nature sinners. We cannot help but be biased against Christ. Therefore, for anyone to come to Christ, they have to be touched by the Spirit. They have to be regenerated. They have to be born again. You know, Jesus said in John 6, no one comes to me unless they are drawn by my Father. There has to be a supernatural, a miraculous work in their heart to draw them to Christ, which is why it's so important that in discipling anyone, you're looking for the work of the Spirit because no one's going to pick Christ by themselves in their own power. Both the Stoics and the Epicureans believed in human potency. That is, the humans had the power to do whatever the humans wanted to do. That's a very common idea even today. Biblically, Christianity says you don't have the potency to pick Christ. You have to be empowered by the Spirit to pick Christ. So this is key that you get, get these points here to understand what he's dealing with. So he goes on to say, these others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Oropagus. Now the Oropagus was a place where they would meet and historically had been a place of power. But by this time, since the Greeks had been defeated by the Romans, the power of the Oropagus was very much diminished, but they still did do some things there. So he brought them to the Oropagus, and the main thing they did there is they had debates, philosophical debates. And they said this, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Now, this is a place that's supposed to embrace strange things, but when it comes to Christ, they will not embrace Christ. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time and nothing else but either telling or hearing some new thing. They're all about new ideas, new fresh thoughts. But when it comes to Christ, we cannot tolerate that. We cannot accept that. There's an inborn bias against Christ in each of us. So this is a great text that illustrates the things that we've got to deal with if we're going to disciple people correctly, if we're going to recognize how God works and work the way he works, we have to know this bias is there, and it will show up. It will show up in people who profess Christ but don't really know Christ. It will show up in people that don't profess Christ and obviously don't know Christ. It shows up in everyone, and our job as followers of Christ, as true disciples of Christ, who are dying to self to serve the will and ways of God, is to see where God is working and go and line up and work where he's working as he assigns us. So this is critical. Paul is all about doing that. He's looking for where is the Holy Spirit working 
because he knows the bias against Christ. And he knows that when the Spirit stirs his heart and gives him an unction to do something, he must learn to pay attention to that, which is what he does here in Athens. And he illustrates for us, he demonstrates for us how to be effective in discipling people and presenting Christ and identifying now those that he's called to serve and serving them well. So may the Lord give us all grace to learn to do that in Jesus' name.